0: Today's text is from Mark four, thirty-five through 41, which was our gospel reading earlier. I will reread it one more time. You can find the scriptures in the back of your order of worship. Let me give some brief introduction to Mark and just our passage, since this is a one-off sermon. The central theme for Mark focuses on the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, We know this because Mark emphasizes Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, his ministry to the sick, his power over demons and nature, and that he dies for sinners. However, Jesus' teachings were not always well received. As was the case throughout his ministry, there were lies, misconceptions, and rejections of the truth claims that he made. And we know this in Mark because he highlights three particular people groups. The crowds, the disciples, and the religious leaders. And all three of them at times, or all the time, misunderstood him. When it it came time for Jesus to die, the crowds mocked him, the religious leaders arrested him, and the disciples even deserted him. But for this morning in our text, we're going to focus on the disciples. This morning's passage, we see that after an exhausting day of ministry in the district of Galilee, where Jesus was amongst the hills of Galilee and the town of Capernaum, he and his disciples board a boat, and they set sail to the other side of Lake Galilee. What awaits on on this voyage not only tests their faith, but it opens up the disciples' eyes to who Jesus really is. And so this is where we will pick up in this morning's text. So please listen as I reread Mark 4, 35 through 41. Hear the word of God. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, "'Let us go across to the other side.' And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him. Let us go to the Father in prayer. Father, we ask that you would meet us here today, that you would speak to your people, that we would hear your word, not my words, but your word, and Lord, that we would respond in kind. We would, we would, we would have faith in you, Lord, faith greater than the disciples. But Lord, thank you that you're with us amidst the storms of life, and you draw near to us. We ask, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Fear of the unknown is a powerful motivator. I think that's why so many people are concerned with the current political and economic climate we find ourselves in. The not knowing whether our economy will improve or continue a downward spiral is enough to make anyone squeamish. And this fear of the unknown is evident by how our political parties have acted. Both parties this week, the major ones, sought to strengthen their position, either to retake territory that was lost or to hold territory. But whether you're a supporter of one of the major political parties, or an independent, or a cynical outsider, Everyone is hanging on for the ride, wondering if any of our problems for this nation might be solved. Now, while I agree that we live in uncertain times and trying times, what's more troubling is not the economic woes that we face or the political obstacles that we face, but the hopelessness many people have succumbed to. Not long ago, an Alliance Life Insurance Company conducted a survey of people from ages 44 to 75 of the 3,000 people that were surveyed, more than 60% said that they feared depleting their assets more than they feared death. In fact, the vice president of the company was quoted saying the following. One of the things in the study that was most surprising was the level of fear amongst those who were polled. Now, on the one hand, this response seems totally irrational, crazy, in fact. But on the other hand, the response also seems strangely understandable. But why is that? Well, I think because for even us Christians, we misprioritize and at times succumb to hopelessness. Even though we know Jesus has got the whole world in his hands, we still worry. The problem is that unbridled, unchecked hopelessness can lead to fear as in this survey. But within this morning's passage, we find a similar response by the disciples. Though the hopelessness and fear is not tied to economics or politics, but instead to natural forces, the response is the same, absent or weak faith. Beloved, we are at times a people that demonstrate hopelessness and fear when we realize that we are not in control of our surroundings, just like the disciples, just like our fellow man. Ultimately this hopelessness and fear its the mere image of faithlessness grounded in the fact that we don't know and trust in the risen Christ as we ought to. And Because we at times demonstrate hopelessness, fearfulness, and faithlessness, we must rest in the risen Lord Jesus for our salvation. So what's our starting point? Where do we begin? And why did the disciples demonstrate these three characteristics? Well, it all started after a long day of ministry. You see, it's evening time, and Jesus has been teaching and miracle working all day. As recorded in the Synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus not only taught many parables that day, but he also healed a paralytic, he cleansed a leper, and he even cured Peter's mother-in-law of her sickness. That was all in the same day. And I think that Jesus just had enough. He was tired and he wanted to escape from the crowds. In fact, the crowds were so dense that Jesus' own family, his mother and brothers, they couldn't reach him, they couldn't find him. That's recorded in Luke. Even worse, Jesus spent a portion of his time teaching on an actual boat in the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds had gathered around him on the shoreline, and they were also in other boats around his boat. That's in the opening chapter of Mark 4. This leads Jesus to the only logical conclusion. I think if he and the disciples are going to receive some much-needed R&R, they're going to sail across to the other side of Galilee, to the east. And that's exactly what Jesus suggests. Look again at verses 35 through 36. It states, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Now, how many of you have been that tired before? So tired that you don't know what you look like, smell like, or feel like? You're so tired that you would just crash on the couch or crash on your bed without giving a second thought to eating, drinking, or showering? Well, I've been that tired before. I can recall many times on my archaeological excavations, returning back to the dig camp, collapsing on the top of my mattress after digging and sweating all day in the hot Middle Eastern sun. And what illustrated the repeated exhaustion is the build-up of the dirt-stained clothes outline that was on my bedsheets. <laughs> I think Jesus was that exhausted. Instead of returning to the town of Capernaum to grab a bite to eat or a change of clothes, he just left as he was. Of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus was physically exhausted. He somehow checked out spiritually. When Mark says he is asleep later on, we are never to conclude that his exhaustion stopped him from ruling over the cosmos. And this, beloved, is the lesson that Jesus planned for his disciples. Just the lesson that the disciples needed to learn about their beloved rabbi. You see, this exhaustion only illustrated Jesus' humanity. However, there is another side to Jesus' personage. That's revealed in our narrative, and it's his divinity. It's Jesus' divinity the disciples are still coming to terms with, still needing greater understanding and faith in. Which is why the suggestion of sailing to the other side of Galilee, while practical for Jesus, because it's going to provide him with rest and escape from the crowds, provided him with another teaching and faith-stretching opportunity for his followers. me. We can conduce this because it's Jesus' suggestion. And if you don't believe that this is a continuation of the day's earlier lessons, then why would Jesus suggest this knowing that it would cause great trouble for his disciples if there was not a higher purpose. After all, if Jesus is divine, then wouldn't he know they were about to go into a dangerous storm? I mean, he possesses all knowledge under heaven and earth. So this great storm that's about to hit them, while it's shocking to the disciples, it's just another piece in Christ's plan to reveal himself. So, what's the problem? Well, this leads us to our first point this morning, which is this. Because we at times demonstrate hopelessness, we can become a fearful people. And we know this because of how the disciples later react. But before we consider their reaction and our own hearts, let's do some homework on Lake Galilee. Now, having been to the Sea of Galilee, I can tell you that it is a beautiful, beautiful place, but it is also quite intimidating. You see the lake, and it is a lake, though we call it a sea, it's 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills and cliffs on all sides. And these hills and cliffs rise anywhere from 300 feet to 1,500 feet above sea level. The east side where Jesus is sailing toward, these are where the highest hills and cliffs are located. And this geological basin makes Lake Galilee particularly susceptible to violent, sudden storms. You see cool air from the Mediterranean passes down through the mountains and it washes over the top of the sea where there is hot, dry air laying over it. And so those two things mix. And though Mark doesn't say how much time lapsed between their setting sail before this storm starts, we know that it takes approximately one to two hours to reach the other side. At its furthest point, Lake Galilee is approximately 14 miles in length, so from north to south, and it's eight miles in width, from east to west. So I imagine they were probably an hour within setting sail when the storm begins and the disciples' hopelessness sets in. Look again at verse 37. Mark writes, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. All three synoptic writers highlight the severity of the storm. Each of them calls it a windstorm. Interestingly, in Matthew and Mark, the same term used for earthquake is the same term used for windstorm. And Luke adds into the text that they are also in danger. But these are no ordinary men. And an evening storm is not unusual. Remember the disciples, they are professionals. They are expert fishermen. So they're used to storms, and they're used to fishing at night. This was common. However, to have your boat fill up with water, that's a totally different thing. I mean, they're going to sink. It's not a matter if it will happen, it's how quickly it will happen. And these boats that they were in, they're not little. In fact, in an archaeological excavation in 1986 along the coast of Galilee at the site of Gennesaret, they found a first century AD fishing boat, likely similar to the one here. It was embedded in the mud and so preserved. This boat was 27 feet in length, 8 feet in width, 5 feet in depth, and it could hold approximately 1 ton of fish. So you can imagine the hopelessness and fear that the disciples felt as their sail and oars and rudder were fighting against the wind and the waves. And I can imagine that they were bailing out water furiously as fast as they could. Which is why they were so amazed, so perplexed, that when they look back and they see their Lord asleep on a cushion. Look again at the first half of verse 38. It states, but he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. That's quite an astounding statement. And I think it must be the epitome of what it means to sleep soundly or to sleep like a baby. What allows a person to sleep that well amidst those circumstances? How does someone not wake up in the midst of howling winds and water that's crashing in and filling up your boat? I mean, Jesus is probably getting drenched with water. He's wet. Well, I think there's two reasons why. First is obvious, and we've discussed it. He's exhausted, and he doesn't care. But the second reason is much more rational, theological, biblical. Because while I've been so exhausted that the things around me have faded away into the background, saving my life is not something that I would forget or to check out in that would be something that I would care about, and I imagine that would be the case for you as well. So how is Jesus so cool, calm, collected, and asleep? Well, I think simply because he trusted his Father with his life. He knew his time had not yet come. So, why bother wake up? Now, I'm not trying to make light of the situation. We can see from the text that this is serious business. However, Jesus sleeping highlights what life should be like amidst a storm. You see, we all face storms of various kinds. A storm of divorce. A storm of rebellious kids. The storms of financial loss. Betrayal by a friend. Failing health, in my case. Death of our loved ones. The question, though, isn't how we escape the storm. Those are just a part of life. But it's how we find rest and peace in the midst of it, just as Jesus did. And the response to a life storm is not to fall into hopelessness and fear, as the disciples later demonstrate, but to place your faith in Jesus all the more, to lean into him amidst the storms. Of course, the disciples failed often in this, and we do as well. So what was their response? What is often our response? This leads to our second point, which is because we at times demonstrate fearfulness, we can become a faithless people. And we see the faithlessness of the disciples in their effort to save themselves by waking Jesus. Look again at the second half of verse 38. It states, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, you're probably wondering why I'm using this verse to illustrate faithlessness. After all, aren't we, weren't they, supposed to call upon the name of the Lord? Isn't that a good thing? And doesn't Jesus promise to help us in desperate times? Well, of course we are. And of course, he does. But with the faith knowledge the disciples possessed concerning Jesus' divinity and the manner in which they pleaded, This verse reveals that their waking Jesus up was not necessarily a demonstration of great faith, but a faithlessness. Now now stay with me on this point. How much sense does it make for disciples, expert professional fishermen, to ask a rabbi, a professional expert teacher, for rescuing on the high seas? That would be like my father, who is a retired structural engineer, asking me, a pastor, to shore up the foundation of his own house during a tornado. That just doesn't make sense, unless my own earthly father knows something about me that I don't know yet about myself. Which could be said of the disciples, right? Maybe they do know something more about Jesus. But if they do know that he is more than just a man, then why be fearful? Listen to how the disciples in the different synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke illustrate this point with the disciples' questions or statements to Jesus during this storm. Matthew states, Save us, Lord! We are perishing! In our passage, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Luke says, Master, Master, we are perishing! Now, either the disciples' words show complete trust and faith in this scenario or they're demonstrating hopelessness, fearfulness, and faithlessness. And I actually think it's the latter. In Matthew, why did the disciples pay Jesus the respect of calling him Lord if they thought they would perish? Well, Lord can simply mean sir, and also carries a weightier meaning. But if Jesus is only a sir, then what good can he do? But if they understand Jesus to be Lord, as in Lord God, then why fear at all? I mean, you've got God in the boat with you. There's no better place to be and no better person to be with at that very moment. And in our text, Mark presents their concern as a question. Do you not care that we are perishing? That's an interesting way to address Jesus. First, the question assumes that Jesus doesn't care. But if Jesus doesn't care, then why pay him the respect of calling him teacher? After all, the title of rabbi, it, it denotes, conveys a, a term of endearment, of an endearing relationship. And second, why ask for help at all if the assumption is that he doesn't care? And finally, Luke's account echoes the same sentiments. So again, their statements don't reveal necessarily great understanding and faith, but how little they understand about Jesus' divinity and power. But that's okay. Okay. That was the intent. This event was not accidental. It was superintended by God. It provided Jesus, as I said before, with another teaching and faith-stretching opportunity. It opened up the disciples' eyes to Jesus' divine nature and his kingdom authority. So what's the solution? How do we respond? How did the disciples respond? This leads to our final point, which is, Because we at times demonstrate faithlessness, the Lord himself must act on our behalf. Though the disciples have shown they don't understand the meaning of Jesus' parables, his kingdom purpose yet, nor his divinity, he still intercedes for his loved disciples. And thankfully for us as well, Jesus doesn't rely on our great knowledge, our superior faith, or our good works before acting on our behalf. So, Jesus awakes in the midst of the storm, in the turmoil, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Look again at verse 39. It states, And he awoke, and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now I don't know whether this is true or not, but I always picture a completely placid lake. Not a ripple in the water, not even the appearance of any wind or the effects of wind. Only the disciples' breathing is heard. That's how I envision that. And in the midst of this this wondrous, miraculous nature miracle, Jesus says to them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You would think after an ordeal like that, Jesus would say something comforting like, don't worry, guys, I took care of it. Or, no worries, it's, it's all good. However, he does not Instead, he points out their faithlessness. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter, what we've been building up to. Jesus' view of fear and faith. You see, fear is the opposite of faith. Wherever fear is present, faith is lacking or absent. But wherever faith is present, fear is driven out. And Jesus brings this up because he knows the disciples. He knows that soon they are going to undergo bigger faith tests, way bigger than any storm on the Sea of Galilee. And though they don't know it, the disciples will suffer persecution, hunger, and thirst, and those things will follow them until the day they die. So it's important that he teaches them this lesson now. In fact, James 1, as we read earlier, says that trials grow our faith. You see, it takes the hardships of life to burn off that dross and refine our hearts, to have a strong and fearless faith in Jesus. It's through suffering that Jesus teaches us about important lessons we would never learn otherwise. He uses trials to show our emptiness and weakness, to draw us closer to grace, to purify our hearts and minds, to break the world's hold over us, and to finally make us long for God. In heaven, The saints will quote this, Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. It is this perspective that rightly judges trouble. But more importantly, we need to come to the terms with the reality that Jesus is greater than anything we will ever face and that we are to fully put our hope, life, and trust in him. And he will be with us as we go through it. That's the lesson that I've had to learn this year and I imagine it's a lesson that we all need to learn and will be learning till the day we die. It's only upon the foundation of Jesus that we will survive the storms of life. So the issue is not that the disciples cried out to Jesus, the issue is that they cried out to Jesus with hopelessness, fearfulness and weak faith. We know this because after Jesus calmed the storm, he asked the disciples where their faith was. And the disciples responded by asking, who is this man? Who is this person that's in the boat with us? Not, wow, I knew he could do it. Look again at verse 41. It states, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him." Now how many of us live our lives like that? How many of us pray but with pray with doubt? I know that I do. I did a lot this year. And it may not be obvious to you, but we all struggle with it. Sin is sneaky. Yet despite our doubting spirits, Scripture exhorts us to do the opposite. As we read in James, verses 6 and 7, it states, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now what gives James, Jesus' brother, this kind of insight and boldness? Do you think he might have witnessed this event that inspired our passage? Mark says that the other, there were other boats around him. Though James, Jesus' brother, was not a disciple, maybe he was on one of those other boats or the disciples told him later what had happened. Also, how do we overcome our own hopelessness, fearfulness, and faithlessness? I believe it comes from growing, knowing and resting in the character of God. It starts with the character of God, of knowing who your Lord is. And then by asking him to do that work in you, it's not something that we can self-generate. We ask him to do those things. While studying, I was struck by the promises of God in Isaiah and how those parallel mark. In Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3, we read this. But now, thus says the Lord, fear not, for when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, my friends, The answer is deep, deep intimacy with Jesus Christ. And we can have this deep intimacy, this strong and fearless faith in Jesus because it is God the Father. It is God the Son. It is God the Holy Spirit. He is the one that draws near to us. That's what Isaiah is communicating when he says that the Lord will be with you. The Lord does not withdraw from us during our trials and sufferings, but he is with us as we pass through them. And that's what Jesus understood and what the disciples needed to learn. Jesus' Father was with him just as Jesus, who is God and also all-powerful, was with them in that boat. And that's the truth we need to rest upon when life storms pound us. The lesson of resting in God's eternal promise to always be with us and to remember that the Lord himself is over all of these circumstances and he brings them about for our good. Paul understood this truth, maybe better than all the disciples put together. How could he not if you think about what he went through? This is what he writes in Corinthians, and then he also states this later on in Philippians. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposed. But, but I, I, Paul, have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How has Paul done this? Where does this confidence come from? Don't blink. You'll miss it. It's four short words in Philippians 4, verse 5. Paul says, The Lord is near. The Lord is near. You see, the nearness of Jesus is the divine remedy for our faithlessness. He is the divine answer to life's storms, and He is the calming force in the midst of it. So don't turn from Him. Don't fear Him. Don't doubt Him. Just rest in Christ. Do you know of any other hope? Do you know how you will survive the storms if you do not reach out? and receive his embrace. Do you see your weakness? Do you want to be saved? Well, My friends, I have great news for you this morning. If you do, then rest in Christ. Rest today. Don't wait for tomorrow. It's not how you come. It's not the way you come. It's not your journey, and it's not your circumstance. Rest your eyes on him. Trust in him. He is your promise in your only hope. And Jesus promises, beloved, to be near to us in real power, even when we demonstrate hopelessness, fearfulness, and faithfulness. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace from the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you because you are so good to us. You draw near to us. Even when we pull away from you, We thank you for that mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would always be with us. Make yourself known and real to us in powerful ways. And be with us, Lord, in the midst of the storms of our life. Give us the faith we need to trust in you. Do a work of hope in us. Remove our fear and give us great faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.